Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. Where is all the snow gone? It's the question we asked Alex Gottlieb, a PhD student from Dartmouth University and one of the authors of a study on the Northern Hemisphere's disappearing snowpack. Gottlieb, I'm a PhD candidate in the program for ecology, evolution, environment, and society at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. I do my work in the climate modeling and impacts group with Justin Mankin, who's my co-author on this paper. And yeah, I'm the lead author of this study. Welcome to Northern Latitudes, Alex. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. The whole study comes down to, and you and I were just talking a little bit before we hit record about, we all have this anecdotal vision in our minds about snow, especially, well, in my case, who am I much older than you, but going back to the seventies when, where we always talk about, you know, you know, the snow was up over the fences all the time and we ran snowmobiles over the fences. We didn't have to worry about them because there was so much snow. And now we don't see that anymore. I understand things correctly. It's never really been quantified before. Yeah, that was kind of the puzzle that motivated us to take a dive into this is that, you know, we all have this sort of really clear picture in our minds that warmer equals less snow and less snow everywhere. And for some of us, that very much jives with our lived anecdotal experience about, yeah, snow piling up so you can snowmobile over fences that we're always skiing by Thanksgiving that you know every Christmas was a white Christmas so it's something that we really have this kind of emotional attachment to and kind of intuitively use to benchmark the advance of climate change in our own experience but being scientists when you actually dive into the data and look at long-term trends in snowpack the picture is a lot less clear Um, for a host of reasons, which I'm happy to talk about. At the end of the day, that was really the question is like, can we actually identify where, when, and by how much climate change has been reducing our snowpack? And what was the difference between your study and how you measured things and what had been done in the past? There are a couple big differences. First is that snow is just incredibly challenging to measure, at least when we're looking at the quantity that we are, which is snowpack or snow water equivalent. Basically, if you went outside and you melted all the snow on the ground right now, how much water would you have? Which in places where the water security and the water supply is really contingent on snow accumulating somewhere in the winter and melting out in the spring and summer, that's really the quantity that we care about. How much water is going to be coming downstream when that snow melts? And it's just a really challenging thing to measure. And we have a bunch of different ways of doing it in the scientific community. But because of those challenges, those estimates don't necessarily agree with one another that well on either just the actual mass of snow on the ground or even its long-term trends and variability through time. So one of the big things we did was really pull in every single snow data set that we could get our hands on. Um, Things like measurements of snow on the ground, you walk outside, you take the core of the snow all the way down to the ground, you measure it and get an estimate of your snowpack to things that we're measuring from space or model-based estimates where we use things that we have better observations of like temperature and precipitation. 
and use those to estimate how much snow we have. Really every way of estimating snow that we could get our hands on and we pull them together and see where we actually see really strong agreement across all of these different data sets on what's been going on with snow. And you talk about snowpack, explain what snowpack means because it's not like snow cover. It's entirely different measurement, correct? Right. Snow cover we can think of as this binary yes, there's snow on the ground, no, there isn't. And that, it turns out, is a very easy thing to measure. You can take pictures of the Earth from space using satellites, and you see if the ground is white or not. And that gives you a really good sense of the extent of how much snow is covering the Earth. And because of that ease of measurement, we've been able to really clearly identify the effects of climate change on snow cover extent over the Northern Hemisphere and see that, again, over recent decades, that it has been shrinking year on year. Um, due to our warming, snow is just covering less of the earth in the winter and spring. When it comes to snowpack, which is really just the amount of water stored in snow, so you can think of it as pretty closely related to snow depth. Um, and that's just something that's much more difficult to measure. You can see, yes, there's snow on the ground. No, there isn't. But whether you have, you know, a couple centimeters or three meters, that's not something that's really easy to tell. Um, in the same way that we can tell snow cover. So it's just more challenging to estimate what is the actual depth of snow on the ground and how much water is in it. When it comes to measuring snowpack, are you doing it at a certain time? Like, how do you narrow that down? Because snowpack in December is obviously different than snowpack in March. Yeah, absolutely. We measure it throughout the year. What we choose to focus on here is snowpack in March. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, that's just generally when snow across the Northern Hemisphere peaks, when we've accumulated just about as much as we're going to, and it's going to start declining as it melts out in the spring. Obviously, that's very variable place to place. In warmer places, you might reach your peak snowpack much earlier in the winter. In really cold places, it might keep accumulating on through May. But on average, that's about when snowpack peaks. And because of that, it's really crucial for informing water security and water supply forecasts in particular. Like I was saying, snow's this really great natural reservoir that just accumulates water during the winter when it falls as snow and piles up in the mountains and then releases that water in the spring as it melts out. So if you can get a good estimate of how much snow you've accumulated in total when it peaks roughly around March, you can have a pretty good sense of how much water you're going to have coming downstream in the spring and summer, which again is really crucial for informing our water supply forecast. So in that community, March snowpack, early April snowpack is really the crucial quantity that we care about. You've done this study, how much of a change have you seen? Very variable depending on where you look at for reasons that I hope we have a chance to dive a bit more into yeah. in that some of our really highly populated, a bit more mild basins in places like the continental US particularly the Southwest and the Northeast, places like Western and Central Europe, we're able to see this really clear fingerprint of human-induced climate change on snowpack trends, generally on the order of 5 to 10% a decade or so. So you multiply that out over the 40 years or so that we're looking at, and those are declines of 20 to 40% of your snowpack compared to what it was in 1980 due to our human greenhouse gas emissions. That part interested me because when I looked at the study and I looked at the map, of course, I focus on the area that I'm in, which is the St. Lawrence River Valley, um, Great Lakes, 
kind of area. And it's gone down and it's gone down by the amount. It kind of made me believe I actually knew what I was talking about for a second because it actually looked like the snow had declined about the amount I would have thought it had. And then I stretch it back even into the 70s and I go, yeah, okay, it's probably half of what it was at that time. And then we've seen the pattern change as well. And I'm sure in some areas that's a big problem because we got rain, you know, two weeks ago we were pouring rain and we weren't snow, it was pouring rain and that water just comes and goes. So how's that affecting, you know, areas that rely on, they rely on the, that late season pack. And this is the, is that, is that a trend that you see in other places as well? More rain, less snow and less snow staying? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that gets at some of this fundamental underlying relationship that we look at. Basically, why is snow in some places really sensitive to warming? And why is it not sensitive to warming in other places? Because in those places that I was listing, like a lot of the United States and parts of Europe, and the St. Lawrence River Valley, we've seen that even a little bit of warming has caused pretty dramatic losses in snow. But over vast swaths of the hemispheres, you get further north in Canada, up into the Arctic, over large parts of Siberia in Eurasia, for instance, we actually don't see those decreases in snow, or in some cases, we even see enhanced snowpack. And what that really comes down to is if you're somewhere that is relatively close to the freezing point in terms of your average wintertime temperature, that makes your snowpack incredibly vulnerable to warming, or even just a little bit of warming is going to increase the likelihood that that storm that comes through drops rain instead of snow, or that you get a big thaw during the winter that melts out a lot of the snow that you've accumulated. So the threshold that we identify is actually relatively cold. It's places that are on average about minus eight Celsius or warmer during the winter are in this place where each additional degree of warming is going to take a larger and larger chunk of the snowpack. And the St. Lawrence sits sort of just to the right of that threshold, which kind of puts you in this regime where even small changes in warming can have really dramatic consequences for snow. When we think about the really cold places where we aren't seeing these trends, that's just because their snowpack is so much less sensitive to warming. If you're minus 20 during the winter, you can warm a couple degrees and all of your precipitation is still going to be coming as snow instead of rain. It's incredibly unlikely that you're going to get these warm periods that melt out snow. So you can warm a bit and your snowpack isn't going to change a whole lot or might even get a little deeper because you get a little extra precipitation. But once you go beyond this minus eight threshold, then your snow starts becoming incredibly sensitive. Is that trend exponential? Like if you're sitting at around minus eight, then maybe you're, yeah, you're losing a little bit, but you go to minus four. Does it? Like, yeah, it- absolutely. You're spot on that this relationship is decidedly not linear, that each additional degree of warming beyond that minus eight is going to take a larger and larger chunk of your snowpack. So say, yeah, the first degree of warming from minus eight to minus seven might take five to 10% on average. But that second degree from minus seven to minus six might take 10 to 15, and then 15 to 20 from minus six to minus five. And up to the point where Once you're right around the freezing point, like minus two, minus one, zero on average, a single degree of warming can wipe out half your snowpack. And so what that means is that once you're beyond this minus eight threshold, losses start to accelerate, Um, that each bit of warming is going to take more and more snow than the last. I'm on the north side of the St. Lawrence, but that's certainly been our experience the last few winters. 
is, you know, and we're, we're living through it again this winter, is that we've had rain, we've had snow. We have rain in the forecast, I believe, for the middle of next week again. So we're going to lose some more snow. What does it mean for, I mean, obviously, we all hear the stories about the ski hills and stuff where they're not getting as much snow. They're making more snow if they can. But in a gen more general sense, what does it mean for some of these areas like uh, southwestern United States, for example, because they re rely a lot on the snowpack, you know, and some of the big cities do, especially, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on something really important is that the impacts of snow loss are felt very differently in different places in the Northeast US where I am or up into the St. Lawrence Valley where you are, where we get precipitation year round, maybe that snow loss doesn't have huge consequences from a water supply perspective. But in terms of winter recreation, skiing, snowmobiling, or forestry, which requires, you know, you yep. need a nice frozen ground and a good snowpack to get out in the woods and do logging operations, like those are going to be the impacts that we feel a bit more of snow loss, in addition to, you know, the effects of snow loss on ecosystems, too, is an active area of research that we're just trying to figure out how, you know, our forests and our animal species that have evolved with this expectation of what winters look like, what happens to them as it changes. But in somewhere like the Southwest US, you're totally right that there, the water security concerns are really what are paramount because we've built all of our water supply infrastructure around this paradigm where snow accumulates in the mountains in the winter, which is a time of year when we generally don't need water that much. And then during the dry season, in the spring and the summer, when our demand for that water really ramps up for things like irrigation for agriculture or generating hydroelectric power as our energy demands spike, that we really rely on having that water stored somewhere else remotely up in the mountains to melt and meet those demands when we need that water. And that picture is just fundamentally going to shift as we're getting more rain instead of snow in the wintertime, that rain is more likely to just run off and make its way to the oceans rather than being stored somewhere that we can make productive use of it. Snow melting out earlier in the spring just sort of widens that time gap between the supply of water and our demand for it when we really need it. And so there's just sort of this greater mismatch of the availability of water with when it's entering the system in the wintertime and when we need it during the warmer months. So it, it's affects. Yeah. So obviously it affects the timing, right? Because if you're a, if there's no snow there to melt, or if it melts too fast, it's not there when you want it to be there. So it's not there in the summertime when you need it to grow crops. And yeah, exactly. And, you know, we have, talked the landscape with these massive dams and reservoirs that we've built to try to capture water to buffer against these dry periods. And historically, what we've relied on is our man-made reservoirs and this natural reservoir of snow working in tandem. And that as snow is starting to melt down in the spring, you can draw your reservoir down a little bit for people to use downstream, and then there's space to accommodate it. But when you're getting rain during the winter or that snow's melting out earlier, then all of a sudden you have to be thinking about managing flood risk because if you have a bunch of snow melt or rainfall coming downstream and you don't have space for that in your reservoir, then you know that reservoir is gonna overflow and you're gonna have massive downstream flooding. So you're faced with this really tricky situation where you might need to be releasing water in the middle of the winter to accommodate this potential flood risk and that's water that's just gonna be lost to the oceans and not stored for when we really need it. How, in a study like this, 
do you link it to human caused climate change? That's a great question. The fundamental problem in climate science is that we've got exactly one earth that we're living on. And the climate that we're experiencing, the weather that we're experiencing is a function of climate change, which we're causing natural variability in the climate system, which would be happening totally independent of us. And we don't have the really nice randomized control trial like you do in medical settings where you give some people a drug, you give some other people a placebo, and then you can see the difference between those groups to identify the effect of the drug. We don't have that. We don't have a bunch of earths that we can emit on and a bunch of earths that we don't pump a bunch of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere on that we can compare and determine the effect of our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, What we do have are climate models, which are these really incredibly complex computer programs, millions of lines of code that are simulating the physics of the atmosphere and the oceans and the land surface and all of their interactions with each other. And what those let us do is they let us run that experiment where we can run a bunch of models with our historical emissions and see how something like snowpack responds. And we can run those exact same models without our historical emissions in this sort of counterfactual climate where we didn't pump a bunch of CO2 and methane into the atmosphere and estimate these counterfactuals of what climate might have looked like absent our interfering in the climate system. And so that's what allows us to generate a bunch of estimates of historical snowpack, what it's actually done in the real world, in the world with our emissions, and this counterfactual, what it might have looked like absent climate change. And we can compare these two things and where there's a really big difference between those distributions, where it's incredibly unlikely that we could observe something like what we did in the real world without our greenhouse gas emissions, that's where we're able to really confidently attribute the changes that we see to climate change, where those two things are much closer, where there's a lot of overlap between what we've observed and what's possible just from natural variability alone then we can't make that attribution. But when they're really distinct, that's where we can say that something is due to human-caused climate change. Like, is, it, is, is there a way to quantify how much that change or how much that effect has been in the last 40 years? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we do in this study for all of these major river basins across the Northern Hemisphere. We can look at our estimates of what snowpack has done historically and what it might have been absent climate change and basically what we get are two big statistical distributions for each of those things. And we can compare the actual values of, you know, our historical trends and these counterfactual trends. And that's what lets us say that in places like the St. Lawrence River Basin, for instance, that the likely effect of climate change is that it has reduced snowpack by about 7% per decade or so over the last 40 years. So we're actually able to quantify the effect of climate change on our long-term snow trends by combining all of these observations of snow and these climate model simulations. Obviously, this coming off of 2023, the the hottest year on record. So this this is likely to accelerate. It's certainly not going to decelerate, right? Yeah. I mean, for these places that are beyond the snow loss cliff where their average winter temperatures make them incredibly sensitive to small increases in wintertime temperatures, that is our expectation, is that snow loss is only going to accelerate in those places. The flip side of that is that that makes the mitigation for, you know, 
halting and ultimately reducing warming a really strong imperative in these places because we're so sensitive to even small increases in temperature. And so, you know, if we have any hope of protecting our winter snowpack in these places, you know, insofar as we can limit any further warming, that is the only thing that's going to do it. Because what this work shows is that once you're off the edge of that cliff, that snow's not coming back. You're only going to lose more and more of it with any additional warming. And that snow cliff just to be clear, was that minus eight average, minus yeah. eight Celsius, I should say, minus eight Celsius temperature. Yeah, yeah, places that are on average minus eight or warmer during the winter months. Thank you, Alex. And that's it for this episode of Northern Latitudes. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can always stay connected on all the major podcast platforms. Just search for Northern Latitudes and hit that subscribe button to ensure you never miss an episode. For even more content, including our photo gallery, visit the website at northernlatitudes.ca. Until next time, I'm Bill Alt from Northern Latitudes.